Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm glad to have you back here with me today at The Last Symptom, where we discuss authentic, complete, and full recovery from borderline personality disorder as well as authentic recovery from all forms of emotional unhealth. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of this program. For those who are just now joining us, I, myself, am a person who once had borderline personality disorder as powerfully as anybody ever has. It defined my entire life. And now I really don't have it. I now share the insights that I gained from that whole ordeal to try to fast-track other people's own efforts to do the same for themselves so that they can finally have a chance to experience genuine inner balance and contentment, emotional health, in other words. We're going to talk today about dealing with hardships, but we're also going to talk about what your priority must be and why. But before we get into all that, I want to small talk with you all a little bit to get to know each other, see how you're doing, and to share how I'm doing. So, how are you? Come here often? That's a nice jacket you're wearing. You often hear me talk about how my personal recovery took seven years total If I'm also including the two years where I was working with a false diagnosis and being misdirected by the professionals. But if we only count the years from when I finally figured out I had borderline personality disorder, and now I suddenly had a concrete direction and a thing to focus on, then we'd say my complete recovery took me five years from that point on. I often tell you that there's no reason your recovery has to take you seven years. A very big reason that it took me seven years was largely because of the misdirection I was subjected to by the very people I was paying unholy amounts of money to for help. But also, my particular circumstances in the years that followed played a very large role in this as well. I was completely destitute financially. I had no stability in my living arrangements. I was bouncing around to different states, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to Columbus, Ohio. I only stayed in Columbus, Ohio for about six months before I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and from there to Springfield, Massachusetts. So I was bouncing, 
and I had no real solid friendships. I was just telling somebody the other day that uh, when I left Philadelphia, which was around this same time of year, the same time of year that I'm recording this episode, when I left Philadelphia, my electric and water had already been shut off for a while because of failure to pay my bills. I simply couldn't pay them. I was job searching all around. But I had put myself in this situation right during the time of the Great Recession. And my profession was suffering cutbacks all around. This is where my style of life of growing up in the Appalachian woods come in handy. I made do. I used the expensive goose down sleeping bags that I had invested in for backpacking during the time I had money to stay warm at night. I used an old gas lantern to light up my apartment. One night, when I was so hungry I couldn't stand it, I waited until the neighborhood was asleep to preserve my dignity, and then my dog Bradbury and I went across the street to the high school baseball field that was over there. I took a flashlight. I picked a grocery bag full of wild dandelion greens out in that baseball field. I came back to my apartment, and I washed and prepared them as a big salad. It was one of the best meals and only meals that I had that week. I had long since sold my TV and my refrigerator. Yeah, that's right. I had lived for nearly two years without a refrigerator. Just ask any of those girls that <laughs> were visiting me at that apartment. They couldn't believe it. I had to sell my refrigerator in order to have some money in my pocket and to pay the rent. I had sold my Apple MacBook Pro, and it was, in fact, the last laptop that I would own until I bought this one that I'm recording this very show on and which I purchased earlier this year. I made sure to always try to pay my automobile loan because I figured that even if I become homeless, it was imperative that I still had my truck because the possibility of any future employment depended on it. Still, I had learned that I could let my payments lapse for nearly three months before the threats of the bank repossessing it became serious enough. And, brother, I exploited this at the very great cost of what was previously an almost perfect credit score. I sold absolutely everything of value that I had, except for a couple of strategic things like my truck, my phone, and some of my wilderness gear. But eventually, I even sold most of that. I looked at whatever I had, and I classified it into two groups, luxury or necessity. If it were something that fell into the luxury category, I put it up for sale on Craigslist. $100 in my account during this period of my life might as well have been a billion dollars. Ain't that something? When life is going well, and the money's rolling in, 
$100 disappears in a second, don't it? And it disappears with no pain at all. You shell out 100 bucks and you think nothing of it. But when you have nothing, $100 feels like a million dollars, and you can stretch it a long, long way. My car insurance expired. My license plate tags expired. My driver's license expired. I went nearly two years driving only when absolutely necessary, knowing that at any time a police officer could see my expired tags and I'd be in a world of hurt. But you know, when it comes to survival, we do what we've got to do, don't we? I remember driving from Springfield, Massachusetts, back to Providence one late evening, which was about a two-hour drive, and I was just zooming along, keeping up with traffic, which meant that I was doing about, oh, 75 miles per hour or so. And as I come over a hill, there was a highway state patrolman standing outside of his car with a radar gun and pointing at cars with his finger and ordering them to pull over. My heart sank. I just felt devastated because I had just gotten a new job in Springfield and the pay was pretty good. Life felt like it was finally stabilizing and I felt like I had a chance to finally get myself squared away with all these things like my license plates, my insurance, and all this. And after all this time of struggle and just as I felt like I could emerge from these troubles, there is the officer, and it looks an awful lot like he's pointing his finger at me to pull over to the shoulder. As I slowed down and began to pull over to the side of the road, he waved his hand at me as if to say, no, no, not you, the other car. And I realized with unbelievable relief that he had only been motioning to the car that was passing me. Oh, my dear Lord, you can't even fathom the relief I felt. I thanked the starry heavens. I don't think I ever drove a mile over the speed limit after that until I was able to get my car insurance reinstated, get my license plate tags renewed, and all those things. If things had played out just a little differently there, I would have been in a world of trouble. And every hardship I had experienced up until that point would have multiplied by a thousand. In Columbus, Ohio, where I lived in an apartment for only about six months before I got work in New England, I once again found myself quickly without electric, simply for an inability to pay for it. Every couple of weeks, I'd take an extension cord and sneak outside over to a neighboring apartment, and I'd plug that extension cord into their outside electrical outlet. Then I would bring the other end of the extension cord in through my backsliding door, and I would plug it into an old electric kettle that I had 
And with that electric kettle, I would use it to heat up boiling water repeatedly until I could warm up a bathtub full of ice-cold water. So in other words, I'd fill up the bathtub with cold water, no way to heat it without electricity, and then I would heat up five or six kettles of boiling water and pour those into the tub, and that would give me a warm bath. I never, ever felt good about doing this, since it was a form of stealing, and I made a pact with myself to never abuse it, although the person in the other apartment might say that doing it even once was abuse enough. (laughs) But what I mean is that I only did this in order to heat up five or six kettles of water for a decent bath, and then I'd unplug the extension cord and roll it back up. Of course, we're only talking about financial struggles here. We don't have time today to talk about all of the emotional struggles I was dealing with, all the uncertainty, the humiliation and embarrassment. Remember, I was dealing with these sorts of financial realities and hardships after a decade of living high on the hog. My ex-wife and I had been fairly well-to-do. We owned a nice house in a nice neighborhood. We drove new cars. We walked around in nice new clothes all the time. We had a lot of money and savings. We were highly respected in both of our professions. You know, I spent most of my time in a suit and tie, and I had the envy of friends and peers. Oh, how the mighty had fallen. Going from the high life to being completely destitute in the course of a year or so was a huge blow to my sense of worth. It was a great and wondrous humiliation. And yet, here I am, recovered from borderline personality disorder. Did I say, I'll work on my recovery when life is good, but for now, I've just got too many other immediate things to worry about. No, I sure didn't. When I talk about my seven years of recovery, I'm talking about recovering in the midst of these circumstances, which I've just painted a picture of for you. My emotional health wasn't simply a concern of mine that was lumped in with all of my concerns. No, my emotional health was my top concern. No matter what was going on in my life or what I was dealing with, My emotional health, this thing called borderline personality disorder, the true nature of it, how I could understand it and how I could fix it, this was the thing that was on my mind more than any other thing. In fact, this was never not on my mind. I was constantly thinking about it, and in any situation... I was analyzing how my emotional disorder was contributing to the situation so that I could observe it and understand it better and possibly counteract it. I think there are some good reasons why I'm a helpful figure to look to by people who are trying to recover. One of the greatest of these reasons is that the hardships that I faced probably rival the most extreme of any situation most other people will encounter. And uh, if I'm here 
on the other side of these hardships, and if the great majority of my real progress in recovery happened during these most difficult times, and if I'm now a stronger, wiser, emotionally healthy person despite it all, and in fact because of it all, this can be true for you too. This can be true for you too. Again, we haven't had time here today to go into every single story or hardship, and I haven't been able to paint a full picture in its entirety of just how hard life really was and all of the other things I was dealing with simultaneously. But at least this might allow you to see some more context that when I talk in generalities about how hard life was for me during this period of time, it was really hard, really hard. When you catch yourself getting discouraged and worn out, when you imagine your recovery possibly taking longer than, say, five minutes, <laughs> because that's what we all want, ain't it? When we first start learning about all these things, we are eager to get it all fixed in five minutes. That's an exaggeration, but hopefully you know what I mean. We like to motivate ourselves by thinking that we can somehow do this in six months especially if we're facing the reality of possibly losing a marriage mate or our family or a job or something. You know, we're, we're facing the real possibility of losing things that we don't want to lose. We want to say, well, I'm going to knock this out in six months. Well, it ain't going to happen in six months. You're going to be dealing with it for years. So, just accept it. Will it be three years for you? Four years? Five? Who knows? It depends a lot on what's in your power and some on what's not in your power. But my point is this. Focusing and worrying about the time is not helpful. It's not constructive, because ultimately it don't matter. In this single decade, I was a wealthy man with a beautiful wife and beautiful friends who worked in an occupation that he loved and felt great respect and admiration by all those around him. Every material thing that I desired, I could have. In this single decade, I was a man who was certain that he had everything under control, and that psychology was a farce, and that emotional disorders were fiction. In this single decade, I was a man who was certain that anybody who subscribes to the notion that psychology matters, and that it can affect us in any meaningful way, that person is a weakling. They are weak. They need to just toughen up. Also, in this single decade, my perfect life crumbled, and my own emotional issues became impossible to deny, and I was forced to recognize against my will that I myself was dealing with some sort of overwhelmingly powerful emotional disorder. 
in this single decade, I went from having everything to having nothing. In this single decade, I went from being utterly certain that I was a perfectly healthy person to becoming utterly certain that I was not a healthy person and that I never had been. In this single decade, I learned that I had borderline personality disorder. I spent seven years becoming a foremost authority on it. And I went from being a person who has borderline personality disorder to being a person who does not have borderline personality disorder. In this single decade, I went from being a man who was living a comfortable life completely unaware of what borderline personality disorder is, I don't think I'd ever heard of it, to being a man whose entire days are now spent helping others escape it. In this single decade, I went from being a man who thought he was happy, but who was really ignorant and in denial about all the ways that he had always been miserable to a man who is now enjoying relative, genuine contentment for the first time in his life. In this single decade, I become a father. In this single decade, I went from rags to riches, to rags, to stability, and now sufficiency. In this single decade... I went from being one person to being an entirely different person. The person I was born as and could have always been if my emotional teachers had not warped my perceptions back when I was a child. Where will we all be in December at the end of the next decade? Well, my friends, the sky is the limit. I love the saying, a lot can happen in one year. I don't even know where I first heard it. All I know is that there is so much truth and profoundness packed into that simple little statement. A lot can happen in one year. If your life is just terribly hard right now, Say this to yourself. A lot can happen in one year. It's positive and encouraging. I saw the author of the Harry Potter books one time say, amazing reversals of fortune happen all the time. Of course, nothing we do in our work here revolves around fortune or luck or happy coincidence, does it? We're not in the business of just floating along powerlessly. No, we're in the business here of taking responsibility for ourselves. Of making no excuses. And of tackling things head on. At the same time, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of things depend on us. And some things depend on what is entirely out of our hands sometimes. So there can be a lot of pleasant and positive surprises in one year 
involving the parts that are out of our control. The purpose of me sharing all of this with you today is to provide a realistic context in your own efforts of recovery. That what seems like a long time right now, or seems to be a never-ending situation, will change. That time is going to be behind you before you even know it. How are you going to use the time? When we're stuck in situations that we don't enjoy, we feel like things have always been this way, and they'll always be this way, even though we should know better than this. Ray Bradbury, my favorite author of all time, once wrote this in his book, Dandelion Wine. Time hypnotizes. When you're nine, you think you've always been nine years old and will always be. When you're 30, it seems you've always been balanced right there on that bright rim of middle life. And then when you turn 70, you are always and forever 70. You're in the present. You're trapped in a young now or an old now, but there is no other now to be seen. Isn't it so true? But with a bit of insight and some constant reminders for yourself, it is helpful, especially in sad hard, or frustrating circumstances to often remind yourself that even though it seems like this is the way things have always been and will always be, it only seems that way. It's not the reality of what life is going to be like forever. Believe me, when I was feeling the heaviest and saddest weight of desperation and humiliation, Year after year, month after month, day after day, my motivation was this very thing. To tell myself that it wasn't going to always be this way. This strengthened me, and it allowed me to suffer all those indignations in a constructive, self-improving way. I want you to endure them too. Now, on to a different but related topic. I wanted to briefly have the chance to talk to you all today about your life priority, how to take care of yourself first. In the past, I've explained how we ourselves have to be our number one priorities. Lots of people struggle with this concept, especially if they have children or husbands or wives or elderly parents and so on and so forth. But the principle is this. A man who is dying from a rattlesnake bite has no business trying to take care of somebody with an ingrown fingernail. <laughs> His priority has to be himself. If he's dead or he's delirious, what good is he going to be to anybody else anyway? So in matters of our emotional, mental, and physical health, we ourselves are always the priority. Are you worried about your minor children's emotional health and the perspectives they're starting to exhibit? Well, that's your cue to focus on yourself first. 
After all, their perspectives and emotional health are a direct extension of whatever perspectives and emotional health you yourself are living with. Of course, all teenagers will begin to exert their independence. But still, your form of parenting and your perspectives on this and how you handle it are really the only focus that matters as far as your part in it goes. So if you really want to help them, you got to focus on yourself first. I figured what I'd do is uh, share some of the real-life ways in which I personally apply this principle to myself and how it makes my life happier and more peaceful. First of all, do you remember that not long ago we spoke about modesty? I explained that modesty is a quality that enables us to recognize our true limits and then to be content to work within those limits. I went on to explain how even all of NASA's successes have been as a direct result of modesty. The scientists and engineers recognizing their real limits and then working within those limits. It's why we sent men to the moon instead of Mars in 1969. So even though modesty may sound like a self-defeating, weak word. It absolutely is not. It pairs with wisdom and enjoying success. So this subject of making ourself our number one priority really ties into developing modesty as a quality for ourselves. Now, let's say that I'm dead tired I've had a million things that have required my attention all day long, and I'm just exhausted and burned out. And let's say that I realize that I'm walking around in this state. What other things do I know about myself from years of experience about being in this state? Well, for one thing, I know that my patience tends to be thin when I'm like this. When I say that my patience gets thin when I'm exhausted and I need some downtime, are we talking about the effects of some sort of emotional disorder here? No. We're talking about normal human limitations. People, human beings, get impatient, grouchy, less understanding when we're tired, hungry, in pain, etc. So when I find myself in this state, modesty and maintaining focus on my priority tells me that what I first need to do is get some relaxation in for myself. And this is what I do. Do I feel guilty for this? No. I may regret my limitations, but regretting my limitations is not the same as pretending they aren't real. By maintaining focus on my priority, I'm able to sit down with a cup of coffee and a book, relax for an hour or two. Do you see how by focusing on my healthy priority, I'm now a better person for it? Because I haven't ignored my limitations. See, I'm just like anybody else. When I get worn out, hungry, under stress, or I'm in pain, 
I say things I wouldn't otherwise say, and I say them in ways that I wouldn't otherwise say them. I get irritable. I behave irritably. Why? Because I'm a human being. And as human beings, we have inherent limitations. So if you're somebody with borderline personality disorder, or if you're somebody dealing with an emotional disorder or emotional unhealth, it's important to separate what is simply human limitations and inherent realities to being a human being from what is your emotional disorder. Emotional disorder is the result of misperceptions and misconceptions about fundamental things necessary for inner contentment. Temporary irritability from exhaustion or pain or hunger or any of these things is the result of normal human limitation. You can see why when it comes to normal human limitations... Modesty and maintaining focus on your priority is a wonderful thing. Think about this. Uh, in the work that I'm doing here, I have to take a lot of care with my interactions with other people because of the theme of my work. If somebody sees me furious in public, what is going to be their automatic conclusion? Well, this guy is not better at all. He says he's cured of borderline personality disorder, but look at him. He's furious. <laughs> Is furious a symptom of borderline personality disorder? Well, uncontrollable anger is. Anger in inappropriate circumstances and situations is. But anger and uh, being furious in itself is not. But will a person who's familiar with my work understand that when they see me being furious in public? Probably not. Probably not. Also, they may not understand. Uh, the night before, I had to take a friend to the emergency room. And so I was up for all night long in the emergency room, and now I'm just exhausted. I haven't had any sleep, haven't had anything to eat, and uh, now something has happened in public where anger is the appropriate emotion. In most circumstances, maybe I wouldn't be screaming like a madman, but maybe now because physically I'm at my limits, so my patience, my ability to think clearly is, is affected, I am screaming. Are they going to take that into consideration? Probably not. Probably not. The only thing they're going to think is, here's this guy talking about emotional health, and look at him, acting like a madman. So that's just a reality of being me and doing this work, is that a lot of people don't have proper views of what distinguishes one thing from the other, where these things come from, and all this stuff. Emotions are bad. You've got bad emotions, like being angry. People who are emotionally healthy, they're just happy and walking around with smiles all the time. It's not true. But you and I, we know better. What I'm saying with all this is that you have to be able to distinguish these things in your mind so that you know what you're working on and what you're not working on. Are you working on not being a human being anymore? <laughs> no, you're not. You're always going to be a human being. So... You're always going to have limits, and when you strain those limits, you're always going to suffer for it. Your patience is going to suffer. Your ability to think clearly is going to suffer. So the wise thing to do is to listen to our bodies, listen to our needs, maintain a focus, a proper focus on what our priority is, which is our ourselves and our needs. It is important to distinguish, to separate what is simply human limitations and straining those limitations 
that simply comes from being a human being from what is the emotional disorder and the natural effects of that. Emotional disorder, again, I said this before, but let me repeat it. Emotional disorder is the result of misperceptions and misconceptions about fundamental things necessary for inner contentment. People who enjoy inner contentment still get mad. There's nothing wrong with getting mad. Every emotion has a, has a legitimate purpose for existing. Sadness, madness, um, uh, fury, you know, even, uh, jealousy, all these things have a legitimate purpose. So it's not the things in themselves, as we've said in the past, it's the cause of these things. Where, where are they originating? And with emotional disorder, when, they, when these things originate from misperceptions and misconceptions about fundamental things that is necessary for inner contentment, then it's a problem. Temporary irritability from exhaustion or pain or any of these things is the result of normal human limitations. You can see why when it comes to normal human limitations, modesty and maintaining focus on your priority is a wonderful thing. So, modesty and maintaining focus on my priority, which is me, works with my daughter, too. Not long ago, she wanted to stay up late and watch a movie with me. I was exhausted. I was irritable. I was feeling impatient. I recognized all these things in myself. And even while I was recognizing that I was in this physical state, this physical slash emotional state, I thought about how special these moments are with my daughter and how one of these days she won't be asking to climb up on the couch with daddy anymore to watch movies late into the night. But I also recognized that I myself needed some quiet time and some time alone for myself This is what my body was telling me. I was reaching the edges, you see, of my limits. And the only thing for me to do was to say no. My daughter was very unhappy about this, and I wasn't particularly happy about it either. But I knew it was simply the right decision. I sent her to bed, and I gave myself what I needed, which was time to myself. Some quiet time. Later, I made up for that with her. How about my work here? Well, you know, there are a lot of people who are suffering the natural effects and consequences of these emotional disorders. And because of the firsthand experience I've had in my own life, which I conquered, a lot of people trust me to be able to give them some insights and answers. They reach out to me from all directions, and I'm I'm honored that they do. Do I want to be able to reply to every single message I get as soon as I get it? Yes, I do want that. Do I attempt to reply to every single message I get as soon as I get it? No, I don't, because I would be stuck at my laptop always. I wouldn't get anything else done. I also wouldn't get to relax. I wouldn't get to take care of my own needs. Um, You know, I wouldn't get to watch TV from time to time for pleasure, read a book. So sometimes I don't reply at all if 
uh, I feel like I've already made the resources available to a person and they're simply not taking advantage of them. Most times, the message is I get sit for a while before I can get to them. And when I reply, I typically apologize for the time it took me to reply. But it comes down to modesty, you see, modesty and maintaining a focus on my priority. When I mentally, emotionally, and physically get to a certain point myself, personally, no matter how many emails are waiting for me, and no matter how many uh, people I feel are waiting for my attention, and no matter how much sympathy and empathy I feel for other people's situations, I set all this aside and I give myself whatever it is I need. Maybe I only need a sandwich. (laughs) Maybe I need some time at the gym. Maybe I need a three-hour nap. Maybe I need a glass of Tennessee whiskey. Whatever the case, I pay attention to my limits. I don't try to exceed them. And I make sure I'm taking care of myself first. Nobody else has to understand my reasons for doing this. Nobody has to agree with my reasons. Only I do. Because I'm the only person with an accurate sense of when I am maxing out. And I'm the only one able to do something about it before it becomes a problem. So all of you out there, follow this example. Don't wait until you're frazzled. Consciously notice when you're getting to a place where you're going to be frazzled and stop. Put everything aside. Give yourself what you need. Live with the perspective that you yourself are the priority. This is not selfish. It's wise. It's modest. Trust me, people enjoy the time I spend with them a lot more. And the time they get with me is much more constructive when I'm taking care of myself first. In fact, my backpacking excursions, which put me in the woods for sometimes five, six, seven days at a time, these are an example of my modesty and maintaining a focus on my priority. I have real misgivings about being out of range of phone reception for that long, considering I have a four-year-old daughter, and if anything were to happen, I wouldn't know about it usually until I come out of the wilderness. And yet, I do it anyway, because these types of escapes into nature are a part of who I am. They form a big part of my identity. They help me clear out some of the riffraff in my head and find clarity. These excursions rejuvenate me and help me celebrate feeling alive. So I don't deny myself of them. And with that, we've reached the infamous, encouraging finale. I used to hang out with a couple buddies called Joe and Mike. Joe was a white guy about my size about my same build and everything, and Mike was a black friend of ours who was a little bit older and a little bit taller. And we used to drive around in uh, Joe's car, which looked like the Ghostbusters car, believe it or not. So this drew a lot of attention. One night decided to go to McDonald's and we were driving through the McDonald's drive-thru to order some food. 
While we were there, Mike says, watch this, and he leans across to the window from the passenger side seat, and he speaks into the microphone, and he speaks into the intercom using a fake Australian accent. necessary for the telling of this story. Mike tells the girl over the intercom, well hello there mate, I'd like uh, a Big Mac sandwich and I'd like uh, some fries. And the girl says, starts laughing and she says, come on now, where are you from? I'm Australian, I'm from Down Under. The McDonald's girl says, you're not from Down Under, I've been Down Under. Without missing a beat, Mike says, Oh, I bet you have. <laughs> <laughs> 